Hello and welcome to the Tell Me If You Can podcast, a podcast where I have the honor of interviewing different women, listening to and unpacking their stories. My name is Ogechi, your host, and today's guest is Ashley Comins. Ashley is a program manager for the Alliance of Police Accountability in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as well as a fellow podcast host and former public servant. As a Pittsburgh native, Ashley talks about watching her community grow and change and how her involvement in her community has filled and changed her own career path. Let's take a listen to Ashley's story. Welcome to the podcast, Ashley. For those of us that don't know who you are, can you give us a quick bio, who you are, what you do, and where you're from? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I hate bios um, just because I can never in the moment just think of like everything that I've done, and I hate <laughs> trying to rack my brain around it, but... Uh, you know, I'm Ashley Comins. I am Pittsburgh born and raised. I've lived outside of Pittsburgh for small um, time frames of my life, but I was truly a kid at those times, so don't really have much uh, connection to anything outside of Pittsburgh. Um, I graduated from Woodland Hills, which is a uh, school district right outside the city of Pittsburgh. Went to Clarion University, uh, studied broadcast journalism. Um, after I graduated, I have, if I'm honest, I've kind of changed my career since graduation in 2009 Ooh, about four times. Um, upon graduating, I started working in a nonprofit space. I was a case manager for a nonprofit called Three Rivers Youth. I worked in their a girls shelter after that I you know like I said I studied broadcast journalism so a year after working there I landed a job at the local NBC affiliate here in Pittsburgh WPXI um, I worked there for about three and a half years uh, while I worked there I also did a number of other jobs because while there I didn't make a lot of money. So I worked at WPXI. I was a freelance writer for N Community Magazine. I also had a job with the county. Uh, I was a drug screener. And um, mm. I think I had a job, too. I was working at Gap. So those were all of the different jobs I had on the side while also working at WPXI. Um, I left there once I turned 26 and was kicked off my mom's insurance, and I was like, well, I guess I need a job that can really support my needs, and so I left. Um, I took a job with Highmark. I worked in that the health insurance um, space for a total of four and a half years. I... Um, Kind of think while I was there, I, I moved on. I moved my way up while I was at Highmark, um, but Highmark just 
wasn't for me. Corporate America, I recognized after being there for that time, was not the space that I felt um, like I was really fulfilling uh, my potential. And so um, while at Highmark, I had, uh, while at Highmark, I started a blog. And then with starting a blog, that kind of gave me a little bit of like that passion that I had that I was missing. And I also got married while I was working there. So I always say, like, Highmark was, like, my money. Like, I got my money up a little bit after working all those odds and end jobs. Um, And after I had got married, I met a woman from my community who was running for mayor, who is now my current mayor, Marita Garrett. And she um, kind of voluntold me that I should run for school board. And uh, I was like, okay, maybe in a few years. And she was like, no, petitions come out in a couple weeks, and I think you should run. And I was like, oh, okay. And I went home, talked to my husband. He was down. Whatever you want to do, we can do. Um, So I ran, jumped. You know, I went, I dove head first into um, running for school board. I won a two-year seat. Uh, I can kind of dive a little bit more into that, I'm sure, though, as we talk further. But I won a two-year seat, served in that role for two years. Uh, Right after I won the election, I accepted a job. I left Highmark. I knew, like, this wasn't it. Corporate America's about to be over. There's a reason I've gotten into this space as an elected official. And then um, my pastor actually told me about um, a job through the United Way. Um, It was with Allegheny Partners for Out of School Time. And it was a complete switch for me because I was leaving a full-time workspace to become a contractor, ultimately. And since I was married, I was like, well, I can go on my husband's benefits. I took the job, and that job, I would honestly say, has completely changed my life um, and really showing me, like, what my purpose is. Um, So I had worked in that job up until this pandemic that we are currently in happened. Um, So the pandemic hit and I was laid off about the second week into the pandemic when all the stay at home orders happened. Um, So after that, I have been through this time, I had been unemployed up until three weeks ago. Um, Three weeks ago, I accepted a job with Alliance for Police Accountability as the program manager. Now, I'm just sitting here thinking after all this stuff, I've just kind of like vomited onto you about my career. Um, Every single step that I've taken, I feel like has gotten me closer and closer to a role that really um, spoke to me. And so now as I take on this new role, which, like I said, it's been three weeks with um, Alliance for Police Accountability, I have never felt so aligned with um, what I'm here for, you know, and the work that I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm still brand new in that job. I'm learning a lot. um, And it's been a wild, but at the same time, beautiful three weeks. And... Here we are. I am on the podcast now, and so. <laughs> well, first, well, first of all, congratulations on the new job, especially during a pandemic. That's no easy feat. Um, and you talk about your journey and how each position brought you closer and closer to 
feeling more yourself in that job position. So when you were growing up, did you have anyone or anything that motivated your desires for your future? Oh my goodness. Yeah, so many people. I mean, I I definitely couldn't um, put it on to one person. So when I was a kid, um, I always knew, I'll say by the time I was 10, I was, I was like, I, I like journalism. I like news. I like, you know, reporting. Um, as I had said, I had lived outside of Pittsburgh for small periods of time. And, and in 96, my mom and I had moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, her and my dad had separated, and my mom was like, I got to get out of here. So we went to Atlanta, and we have two cousins that live there. One cousin is an accountant, worked for, you know, the public school system. And then the other cousin was a news reporter for the NBC, NBC affiliate in Atlanta, Georgia, WXIA. And uh, my mom is a nurse, so with her work schedule every other weekend, she had to work. So on those weekends she worked, I stayed with my cousin who was the news reporter. And so the weekends that I would spend with her, she would take me to the, you know, the TV station. I would get to watch her behind the scenes. She would let me sit at the desk. And since I lived in Atlanta, I watched her on the news all the time. And I just, I loved what she did. Uh, she had a beat. She was the kids in schools reporter. And, uh-huh. um, you know, probably because she talked about kids in schools that like related to me because I was a kid. But I just was so amazed at, like, oh, my goodness, my cousin is a news reporter. And um, it just, it stuck with me. Um, So I I feel like that was always something, you know, in my mind and in my heart of what I wanted to do, um, in addition to my mom. So my mom is a nurse, and... Prior to meeting my cousin, you know, when you see your mom do something, that's what you want to be when you grow up. Like, oh, I want to be just like my mom. She's a nurse. (laughs) And then I realized everything that nurses and medical professionals do. (laughs) And I was no longer interested. And so it really pushed me into the media space. I love writing. I still love to write. Um, I, I do. I guess I didn't mention this in my bio, but I still freelance. So I still do freelance writing. Um, now and uh, so yeah I think like career wise that cousin had a really huge impact on me and then um, also growing up I did a lot of local pageants in this region which was explicitly for black girls so I did Mm -hmm. Little Miss Afro-American Miss Preteen Pittsburgh and then the last one before I went to college was Um, Miss Black Teenage and each of those programs for me surrounded me around so many um, professional and successful black women that in many different ways each of those women have impacted me you know they're like a part of the village that I had growing up and I know that um, this is the success that I aspired to have was always um, exemplified by the women that surrounded me and um, poured into me growing up. So I couldn't put it onto one person, but I think a collective of women that I've been blessed to watch as I grew up um, encouraged me to, uh, you know, push for a, you know, whatever I wanted to be. You know, I never felt like there wasn't anything I couldn't accomplish, despite any 
obstacle that will be placed in front of me. That is really cool that you named basically um, influential women, black women that were either in your family or in your community that poured into you, like you said, and influence your desires for the future. And I think that in your bio, I can see connections with your cousin. I mean, yes, you did end up working literally in media, but as a community organizer, someone that works for the community, a television person that had her specific beat with kids in the school, and I imagine she had good connections with people in the community and had good relationships with people in the community, that's something that you have now. And when I think of a nurse, I think of someone that is a healer and in advocating for rights and for people, you're trying to heal the community at the same time. So you've figured out how to blend that nursing and media in a way that is best for you, especially in the current position. It's a definitely a healing position. It is. That you're, you are 100% correct. It's crazy you say it like that too, because when I ran for school board, that was kind of the moment that clicked for me. You know, I thought I was supposed to be this big news reporter that would eventually make it to the network and I would tell all the good stories. And no, mm-hmm. it was that I actually wanted to be in a space to um, advocate. You know, I'm not afraid to speak publicly, but I also can do that for young people. And yeah, I, that's it. <laughs> Awesome. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about when you were at um, WPXI, that position, like if if you were at a networking event and you were like, well, I work for WPXI, someone would be like, oh, snaps, that's super cool. But it wasn't obviously, you know, enough because you had like three other side jobs. So what was it like going into that position, especially for someone that might be right out of college and taking that first media job and why did you choose not to maybe stick it out and get a more permanent satisfying position with that company Ooh, i'm gonna try to make this like short and sweet <laughs> as i possibly can you know my time at wpxi was very interesting so um prior to going away to college Um, I talked about, you know, the pageants that I had done and specifically Miss Black Teenage when I I won in 2005. And after that year, the summer right before I went to college, I had applied for a journalism workshop that had been happening here in Pittsburgh um, through Pittsburgh Black Media Federation. It was the Frank Bolden Urban Journalism Workshop, which brought high school students together for a whole week, we would stay at Point Park University, they would break us out into um, four different groups for whichever medium you preferred, so TV, radio, print, and um, uh, that might have been it, those three, Um, and I had done that my senior year, and I had connected with local journalists, Um, one specifically was Vince Sims, who's no longer here, but um, through my work with that pageant and that workshop, I had, you know, connected with him. Um, After I graduated and right before I landed my job there, Vince Sims is how I got my foot in the door. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
he, I ran into him at an event for my previous job, and he was there, and I was telling everybody, I'm getting a job at this event. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be working here. You know, I kind of, like, just spoke that into existence. And then I get to the event. I run into Vince Sims, and he remembered me. And he was like, hey, how are you? And I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm great. I need a job. And he <laughs> gave me his card, and I sent in my stuff uh, to interview when I first went in, I didn't get the job I had applied for. I applied to be a writer, but the news director at the time, they had filled the position. But there was a production specialist position open, which is basically, you know, camera operator. Uh, we did voice caption work. There was just, we did production work. And so I applied for that job. I got that job. And then once I started, I was the only black woman in the whole department with a bunch of white men. And so wow. um, when I started the job, you know, the, the main job we had was operating robotic cameras, which isn't something that you just learn how to do when you go to college. So there were a lot of, I don't know if microaggression is the correct word, but I just had to push... I had to push back against people who just wanted to make it tough for me. Um, and it's like, it was like a training curve that you had to get through. And um, it was, it was made hard in a way of like hazing kind of. Like earning your strengths. Yeah. And it just, it wasn't helpful, but um, the one thing that I was able to do um, was connect with some people who did want to support me, did want to see me win. Um, I actually had a mentor of mine who is still currently a mentor of mine, Chris Moore, and he just was a he was a, a, a resource but also a support system for me that I didn't have to explain why I was struggling because he just got it. And so... I was able to grow and learn and um, get through those moments and uh, utilize that experience for my benefit. So once I got used to my job, I then started to like come in on days that I didn't work because I was allowed to. I would work on my resume tape. I would practice sitting at the desk. I would go out with photographers to interview people. There would be a lot of times when I was working at the TV station, um, it would be a, you know weekend coverage, and I was there in the morning, and I would watch at night, and I'd be sitting on the couch with my my uh, husband like. I did that interview. Like, you wouldn't see me, you know, of course, on TV, but the questions that had been asked for them to get the story, it was my it was my question. So it was, like, those mm -hmm. kind of moments where I was like, I got this. I can do this. And um, I was willing to push through that job despite not being able to, like, I wasn't making a bunch of money, but it wasn't about that. It was about the experience. It was about learning. And... Um, I I won't ever take that moment for granted because I know that that was just a moment where I was able to build tough skin. Um, I was able to I was able to learn and work in a space that I've I had always wanted to work in, and then also I was able to. Um, 
Um, sorry, I have a baby, so you might hear her in the background a little. She's on all my podcast episodes, so it's only right that she (laughs) tapped in there. Yeah, right. Her name's Bellamy, just in case someone wants to know. (laughs) But yeah, so that moment, you know, I thought that was going to be that that step right before that breakout, you know, TV station that would say, hey, Ashley, we want to hire you. Um, But that moment never came. And what I have, what I think I was able to like, I don't want to explain it. You know how you have those things where you, it's like a shoulda, coulda, woulda, or like a what if. Mm -hmm. I was able to leave out of that TV station space and wanting to work for a TV station without any regrets. You know, I knew after working at the TV station and local TV specifically that um, the way I wanted to give back to my community and the way I wanted to tell stories wasn't going to happen with me being a news reporter. And um, it allowed me like peace with moving on and seeing what else was out there for me. So if I had to say WPXI gave me anything, it gave me an experience, it gave me connections that I, to this day, will be grateful for. Um, I am still friends with people uh, that I met through that work, and um, it also gave me the confidence to uh, change my mind, you know, that moment of like, you know what, I don't want to be a news reporter anymore actually okay with it it didn't feel like a failure it felt like a like an awakening like that's not it for you Ashley you're not meant to do that you thought you were because it just sounded right but that's that's not what I have for you and um I love that that. it wasn't a failure it was an awakening that's a great perspective that's actually uh, quotable (laughs) um it's a great perspective because who amongst us, I mean, traditionally, yes, you get out of college, you start a job, maybe you switch job a couple times, and then you stay with that job for decades. But now more and more people are switching jobs um, out of necessity. You know, they don't get that first dream job right away, or um, they have pivots in their life. And you are you did everything you should have done you learned the ropes you dealt with the the tribulations you you found a mentor you put in that extra time developed the skills and it just wasn't for you and you did everything you could in that role given the opportunities that you had and you chose to change your mind or pivot (laughs) Um, you were involved in, yes, yes. Those skills are still usable. It wasn't a waste of time, right? Developing those skills, learning how to tell stories. Um, you and I both share the position, I guess. We're both community organizers and we work with community organizations And one thing that I've learned in doing community organizing is the power of a story. Um, And so that skill that you've learned can now be applied in a way that you have control and the person whose story you're trying to amplify has control. 
and you don't really have to go through the ropes of the media conglomerate and all of the issues that might cause. How did you get into community organizing? So I got into community organizing when I ran for school board. So I ran for school board in, trying to think, that was 2017. Yep. I ran for school board in 2017. I had to remember because um, I'll never forget, I, like I told you, I, I had a mutual friend with my now mayor, Marita, and um, a friend said, hey, you know, a black woman's running for mayor in Wilkinsburg. And I was like, what? A black woman? Who? I need to figure this out. So he connected us. I showed up at uh, an early, like, event that she was having just to kind of announce and, you know, meet and greet type space. And Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. I showed up there, her and I just clicked. And we were like, okay, we need to meet again so we can just talk, just you and I. And that's that's the next time we met. And I remember explicitly that that day we met and trying to recall the year because um, I just wanted to help her with, like, social media and, like, uh, marketing stuff for her campaign. And then she's like, no, you need to run for school board. And the petitions were due at a time when I already had a trip planned to go to Hawaii for a friend's 30th birthday. Oh, snaps. Yes. So I was like, oh, I got to get this done before I go to Hawaii because I'm not thinking about this when I go to Hawaii. And so, um, and that was three years ago and it's 2020. So yeah, that was 2017. So I ran for school board in 2017. And you know how you do something and you just feel like it, this just feels so natural. It felt so natural. Like I wasn't afraid to knock on doors and talk to people. And it was, it was exhilarating to knock on doors in a community that I have known all my life. My family, my parents graduated from the local school district back in the eighties. So, you know, I know this community, um, in a, to a point of like, I see where we're at now and you can tell the community is fed up in that moment that you get to actually knock on someone's door and it's someone who's lived here forever and they express their frustrations or why they've given up. It just was kind of like, it, it hit me. I was like, Oh my goodness. Like I get their frustration, but I have this energy and I want to help them figure out how we can all do better for each other. And, um, after I campaigned, it just, things just started coming to me, you know, it wasn't even about looking for it. It just was coming to me, the people, the connections, the network that I have, because I do have that media background, even now to this day, if there's something going on in my neighborhood, I always have someone either messaging me, calling me or texting me from a local TV station because they're like, Ashley, we're getting this info. I wanted to talk to you first. And so it's like, I didn't know that this was the space that I was supposed to be in, but it just, it just came naturally. So then after I ran for office and I was um, on school board, then my friend Summer Lee, she was like, I want to run for state rep. And I was like, hell yeah, let's do it. And so she ran for state rep and, you know, she was, that was that, I, you know, I thought my campaign was like, you know, an eye opener. Oh my goodness. Working on Summer Lee's campaign 
when she ran the first time, which is now, I guess, like three years ago. But um, it it was amazing because when she announced and we were out, you know, talking about her campaign, so many people were like, oh, she's not going to beat uh, Paul Costa. Like, that's, that's too, like, basically, like, who does she think she is? And I was just like, mm-hmm, the whole time, like, y'all keep sleeping all summer, and we're going to keep going to these fundraisers and raising this money and talking to the people and knocking on the doors. And that was the election that really showed me how people can make the changes that they need. She ran in a district where everyone's like, oh, well, because, you know, she's a black woman. And she was like, Summer's district is predominantly white. Like, this isn't about because I'm black. Like, everybody has the same issues. Everybody or everybody wants the same results. And her messaging didn't change whether she was in Braddock or Churchill. She was talking to everybody the same way because we all want the same outcomes. And she doubled voter turnout. And that night, (laughs) after she won that night, like, we all just cried these tears of just, like, joy and relief and, like, amazement at what we did because so many people told us what we were trying to do couldn't happen, and it happened. And not only did it happen, there was no question. There was no, like, oh, well, it was a close race. Like, no. Like, we blew him out the water, and it was a collective. It wasn't just a one-person thing. Um, Summer was always about us. We can do this together. And we really did it together. Um, And that was the moment I was like, this is where we're supposed to be. Like, this is the work we're supposed to be doing. It's not easy. It gets hard. It's sometimes lonely. But the changes that we're able to to make happen for, like, this next generation coming up, because this generation coming up now, they are even more cutthroat than we thought we were when we were growing up thinking we were progressive. And so it's encouraging to be able to set these, um, like, kind of, like, set it up so that we can keep doing better and being better. And um, I'm addicted. I don't want to say I'm addicted, but I'm addicted to, like, this space of, like, bringing people together around issues that we know we need to fix and fixing it. Like, it's just, I can't explain it. I just love that your leap of faith or being voluntold to run for a school board kind of encouraged your friend to run for that state delegate. And I'm sure it's then encouraged other people that have watched her journey especially given the criticism or the doubts that she faced while she was running, um, that has encouraged other people or will encourage other people to take that leap of faith. And I think in that 2017 time, a lot of people were that may have traditionally not run for office or taking that leap of faith. And I think the messaging of being frustrated or wanting to change their communities was what catapulted that and I think like you said that transcends race if you're upset or you want equity it doesn't matter who what the face of the person that is that agent of change you want change they're working towards it and she's proven herself right um then that transcends what that she looks like or even if she has that cookie cutter 
resume to fit that role because that that has not been working previously so why not look for someone new or something right and i mean i think this past election season which you know in the midst of this pandemic you know it was it worried us because you know for us who organize and get out on the ground and knock on doors we couldn't do that and um so you know it's the it was the conversation then of oh uh, mail-in ballots and you know once you do the mail-in ballot that kind of changes the deadline for voting because you get your you get your mail-in ballot a month before election you've already sent that in so if I didn't talk to you already and you you didn't get that messaging from me you got it from my opponent I don't know what you would do and then the election results came in and not only did she win but she exceeded voter turnout from her first race So it was like, y'all, we fooled you the first time. Then the second time, y'all thought you could bring someone else younger who who could, you know, take the community back to the former type of leadership that they had. And the community pushed back even more in a pandemic. I mean, it just, it was, it was, It was that that additional like confirmation of like we are doing the work for the people because the people continue to show up for you because you're showing yes, up yes. for them, especially, especially in a pandemic. In pandemic. I, mean, I mean, and to, and to double, the, double votes the votes in that time, in that time is, even, is more even more amazing. amazing. Yeah. So so. Being involved, Being in, the involved in the community, and, and you, you not just, just and you're you're um selling yourself a little short because you've been involved in nonprofit well before you ran for office. office. Yeah. So how, <laughs> so how have you seen Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh grow, and grow and change? Oh man, you know, I don't even know like how I want to start. I've seen Pittsburgh. I've seen Pittsburgh grow and change in a, in a, a lot of different ways. So one thing I think about is prior to leaving and going away to college, um, I kind of like lived in a bubble. You know, going to Woodland Hills, they created at the time, they created this like, it was kind of like a utopia, you know, because Pittsburgh's very black and white. We don't have much on the mm-hmm. diversity scale. We're better now, but when we were growing up, you were either black or you were white, and that is just what it was. And so Woodland Hills was a, uh, it was probably uh, 70-30, um, 70% white, 30% black around the time, give or take a few numbers when we were in school, and we all, you know, for the most part, got along, you know, like, I knew about racism, Uh, fortunately, my parents kind of, you know, always instilled in me to be a a, a proud black girl, but I really didn't grow up, you know, feeling like, oh, I'm black, or, oh, they're white, I can't go around them, like, I had white friends, I had black friends, I'd spend the night over the white friends' houses, like, it just wasn't a thing. And then I went to college, and I went to college in Clarion, Pennsylvania, which is the complete opposite. Yes. Um, I mean, Confederate flags and just... Can you you explain, because um, many people listening may not be from Pennsylvania, 
And so Pittsburgh is like, it's in the western part of Pennsylvania, and it's probably, it's the biggest city in that, which is really not that big of a city if you think of Philadelphia, which is on the eastern part of the state. But even in Pittsburgh, I will never forget, so I went to school in Pittsburgh, in case you, this is your first episode and you didn't hear from previous episodes. Yes, so um, I went to school in Pittsburgh, and I remember, first of all, you guys have a very pitiful subway system, (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm on this very pitiful subway thing. And driving by, as we got further and further away from downtown Pittsburgh and seeing Confederate flags, and I'm just like, where am I? And I was just going further. And and then I I remember I I had a friend that I visited in, um, I think it was IUP. So it's not too far from Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Or no, it was Cal. It was California, Pennsylvania. Sorry. Um, and so that's a little bit further out and seeing the same Confederate flags and then remembering people that were in my classes that said they were from these towns. And I'm thinking like, so this is the culture that you came to this very diverse university with and surrounded by that you may not be racist, but it's such, it's so normal that people can wave these side by side with the American flag and find nothing wrong with it in this northern state because I was always told the confederate flags were only waved in the deep south and that's where the only place you're going to get racism and I'm north of the way north of the Mason Dixon so there should be no confederate flags there should be no racism right and so you're in Clarion for college and you're seeing this and I imagine it's a culture shock. So it is. So I, I guess I, I can give this kind of background. So like I said, I growing up, I went to Woodland Hills. And so Woodland Hills, you know, we they created this false utopia of, like, harmony and peace. And we all love each other. But there was this one um, school district, specifically Connellsville. You know, I was a cheerleader. And anytime we would go to Connellsville, PA, which isn't, far out Connellsville PA is probably about 45 minutes out from here and we weren't allowed to go to the restroom on our own and we were high school students like we always had to go with a chaperone because it was that bad out there and um now as an adult I can't it's just mind-blowing that it was, you know, that kind of stuff has been tolerable for so long. But, you know, we're not too far removed from the civil rights movement, so we got to be real about that. Um, but that, that I think that was my point to understanding, like, I knew racism was still real, but I was fortunate to have a space of, like, not having to really deal with it. And then I went to Clarion, which is about an hour and 20 minutes outside of Pittsburgh, very rural, no diversity. And, you know, if you are black in Clarion, you more than likely go to the local university. You don't just live in Clarion. There's a few, a small few, but a very small few. And that was the point that I really recognized that Pittsburgh as this big city is really this big city 
surrounded by a bunch of rural towns where all those people come to the big city to live when they want to get that city experience. So you're not mm-hmm. getting people in this, you know, like when you have a, a like Cincinnati or, you know, Philadelphia and D.C. and Maryland all being close to each other. The closest city to Pittsburgh is what? Col- uh, Cleveland and, you know. Yeah, that's a yeah, drive. That's a drive. Yeah. So Pittsburgh is a, a big city, quote unquote, filled with a bunch of rural um, people who didn't grow up with a lot of diversity. And Pittsburgh, when I was growing up, was always called the Mississippi of the North. That was just like that that nickname that black Pittsburgh knew because we knew that fairly racist here. And wow, um, wow. so now as an adult to the question, how much has Pittsburgh changed? I mean, it really hasn't. Pittsburgh has been really, to me, has been really good at sweeping things under the rug. And um, it has never really wanted to um, own up to its racist history, specifically for black and brown people, until just this past year when we finally get a report that proves what black Pittsburgh has been saying all of my life and longer than that. And so, you know, uh, people love data. And so now that the data is out there um, and we're also currently going through, like, just civil unrest on top of this pandemic, um, now Pittsburgh is being forced to uh, face the reality of how bad it is for some people. And um, as a black woman here, I... Not that I needed that report for any kind of um, confirmation for how I felt about this city coming back after college, but it is something that now is it's kind of like a tool where don't question me when I tell you um, this isn't this isn't appropriate or or kind of like what's the thing you know I'm in the nonprofit space. And I say it all the time now, like, I don't want to hear any, you know, foundations when it comes down to who they're funding. They need to be intentional about funding black-led organizations because for too long you have these types of um, institutions that maintain uh, systemic oppression. Whether, you know, like you said, like you, you've been friends with people you went to college and, you know, they're not racist, but they've been raised by the most racist people ever. And then that's when we have to start to look at ourselves and look at ourselves and say, like, well, am I upholding these same systems? And for us, too, as black people, sometimes we can do that to ourselves because that's just what has been ingrained in us because you don't know, you don't know, you don't do better until you know better. And um, this city right now is just really going through a, a reckoning that's a long time coming. And that's a good thing. Sometimes the word reckoning could be um, can leave a, a nasty taste in people's mouths, but it's something that is necessary for the purpose of making it better. It's uh, like pruning flowers you can just choose to have or even better example lately i've been neglecting trimming my edges 
very basic. <laughs> because, you know, my hair's grown. And for black women, length is, like, everything. But also my hair is not, is going through me. And so I finally trimmed my ends. And my hair are automatically feels healthier. Do I mourn the loss of that length that I was used to? A little bit. And so in pruning or trimming the ends of society, there are some people that are going to be left behind because they're choosing to hold on to what doesn't give life to a community. Discrimination, racism does not give life to a community. Yes, it's had a long length, right? Like my hair has been long, but it was not useful. It did not serve a purpose that was life-giving. And racism, no matter how long it's taken place in your society, no matter how comfortable it's made you, it's not life-giving. And so it's a disservice to the people that are oppressed, but also a disservice to you who might be privileged by those systems. And so in this current position that um, I think it's super cool that you're in working for Alliance for Police Accountability. Do you think that this is something that um, might be more useful given the statistics that Pittsburgh has and that you can now galvanize towards this movement of um, accountability for law enforcement and protecting communities of color? So... I, I think that's exactly the space that um, the organization and my role will be able to do. So um, Alliance for Police Accountability was uh, started back in whew, 2011. I don't know if you were here in 2011, but there was a case of a young man, he was a Kappa student, his name was Jordan Miles, and the city of Pittsburgh police um, beat him up badly, so bad that he was unrecognizable. Thank goodness he lived and was able to tell his story. But this organization started at that time because when that happened, nobody knew what to do. And oftentimes when we're in, you know, in the space of organizing, that's the goal. You want to kind of educate people on how to go about advocating for themselves as best they can. And so that's how long this organization, um, the founder and CEO, Brandy Fisher, has been, you know, working and pushing this organization since then. And I tell her all the time, you know, now that her and I work um, so closely, how, you know, I always appreciated the work that I could see from a distance that APA was doing, but now being on the inside and seeing things that a lot of people don't even recognize the organization does, um, I am even more um, amazed at what she's been able to do as a one-woman band. You know, she's had a lot of volunteers and people that support her, but you know, in this nonprofit space, that funding measure is hard, you know? Um, yes, yes. It's hard. And so oftentimes up until, I'll say, this past year, no one really wants to 
dig deep into what the the true systemic issues are. You know, everybody wants to walk on eggshells and tiptoe around it because they really don't want to get into they don't want to get into the nitty gritty of like where this comes from, and also owning up that maybe I've been you know maintaining these systems that aren't helping the people that we say we want to help, and so now. When I applied for this job, there was a part in the job description that basically said, like, you have to uh, explicitly want to uplift the black community. How many job descriptions would you ever find that say that? Like, I bet your heart heart saying. Like, it fluttered. It was just like, could this be any more perfect? And... You know, for me growing up, like I said a little bit earlier, like I I am super thankful for both my mom and my dad because I didn't realize when I was a kid how impactful them, you know, uplifting and speaking positively into me as a black girl would empower me to be a strong and confident black woman despite, you know, things that happen to me, you know, like life's not perfect. And I go through hard times. I cry, you know, I, I I like to show up as my best self all the time, but I'm not always my best self. But what I have never allowed myself to do is to not be proud of myself as a black woman and, and, you know, achieving things that I've, I've been able to achieve, um, so far in life and I haven't you know I'm, I'm only 32 so I'm not old I've got a lot more life to live God willing and so um had my parents not you know instilled that in me I don't know how this city could have really um made me feel and I know that everyone doesn't get that growing up so for people who don't have someone consistently telling them, you know, like you have to be told, um, I I started therapy and my therapist and I were talking about this earlier. Like when you grow up or when you're born, you're like a blank slate. Like, you know, nothing, everything that you, um, actualize about yourself is from what people put into you and pour into you. And if you don't have something positive being poured into you, you know, who knows? how that could, um, you know, affect the outcomes of whatever your life may be. And living in a city like Pittsburgh as a, as a black person, a brown person, a marginalized person in what, in whichever way, you know, it's like fight or flight, what you going to do. And too many people, um, you know, succumb to those kind of circumstances. And, you know, I just, I guess my hope for this city, now that we're in this space of reckoning, you know, what has been Mm -hmm. happening, that we can do better so that these generations coming up can can have more and do more. Um, Yeah, I'll get, you know, no, that's great. And I think you're also thinking or envisioning a future for your daughter, right? 
assuming she wants to stay in Pittsburgh, you want it to be a Pittsburgh that's been better to you than the Pittsburgh you grew up in. Um, and it, it's always going to need to change because it's taken so long to really start the change compared to other cities. But hopefully by the time she's 32, she can see the impact that you did that summer has done that other people that will pour into her and the community that she lives in have made as well. And so since you're a mom, I want to ask you, I always ask everybody, how do they maintain balance? How do you maintain balance? So I maintain balance one, because my husband is amazing. Like I, you know, oftentimes like becoming a mom, you know, you hear the stories of like, you know, it's, it's innate for a mother to like do everything. And for me, I, I can't, I can't say that I have to do everything. Like I truly, I have a partner who, you know, if, if I can't do something, he's going to do it and vice versa. And there are no, like, traditional roles in our house. Like, the man does this, the woman does this. Like, the only thing my husband can do is breastfeed our daughter because <laughs> he is biologically not able to. But um, I know that I have been able to keep my balance. I have been able to um, maintain as much as I could when it comes to my work and the things that are important to me because he supports me and allows me to like have time when I need it. Um, and I am just, I am very, very thankful for that. I, uh, I follow this page on Instagram. Um, I've been following this woman for some time. Her IG name is watermelon egg rolls. And she, I, I love her, her page. She, her husband is Asian and you know, she's a black woman. So I thought that was the, the, coolest name that she came up with but she basically made this post about her husband he was doing their daughter's hair and it was basically the concept of like this is a partnership and you know as as a father of girls like you need to know how to do your daughter's hair because if I'm not here you gonna have my daughter out here looking a mess because you didn't know what to do with her hair and she was ultimately just pushing the idea of like partnership and that there is no one parent that has to do more than the other like you're the mom so you do you handle your daughter and you're the dad so you handle your son it's like no like we're parents if I can't do it you do it if you can't do it I do it and um she ended it with like normalize where is your dad like don't come to mom for everything. If your dad is downstairs doing nothing, ask your dad. And I just really, um, I really felt that. Like, even now, like, as we're doing this podcast and, you know, I have a little baby, like, he is keeping her as quiet as possible right now so I can <laughs> do this interview and vice versa. He has a radio show. So when it's his day to do his show, like I make sure I keep her as occupied and, you know, out the way as possible. But that is how I have been able to maintain my balance, keep my sanity 
and I just started therapy a month ago. (laughs) So that too, you know, just being intentional about taking care of myself because if I'm not okay, my family can't be okay. And same for my husband. If my husband's not okay, his family can't be okay. So that's how we roll. I love that. I mean, you're right. If you are not well, it will manifest itself externally. And unfortunately, you don't want that to be negative towards your husband or your daughter or your coworkers or whomever. And so taking care of yourself is good for yourself, but it's also um, good for people that you encounter. And I think that's one thing that I had to like discover because I struggle with taking time for myself and I'm so much of like a servant minded person. And so flipping it (laughs) like, okay, I'm not doing this for me, even though I should be comfortable doing that. I'm doing this to serve other people. And so whether it's taking that time to do yoga, meditation, prayer, going for a walk, whatever you do that feeds you spiritually, mentally, emotionally, um, and balances you out is not just for you, but for those that you're called to serve in your in whatever role you play in your life. So I love that. And yes, normalize asking where dads are. Because I one thing I don't like is when <laughs> where, where he at? One thing I don't like is when sometimes, and this is a personal pet peeve, so this is not an attack at anyone. But I don't like when people are like, my husband is watching the kids like he's a babysitter. And it's like, no, he's he's taking care of, like, he doesn't get a, a reward. <laughs> he's being a father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. like oh he's so brave taking care of the kid I'm like okay (laughs) so crazy you say that because that's the truth even when when we first had her and like when she was a little baby like fresh like freshy and (laughs) you know other moms I know are like so nervous or they won't leave their little babies with their dad and I was just like shoot he loved her just as much as me so I mean, he'll be all right. He'll figure it out. Like, as long as he has everything he needs. Like I said, he can't nurse her, but there's milk, and he'll figure it out. And, I mean, he is just, I, you know, I'm, clearly I'm biased, but, like, <laughs> he is just the best dad. Like, a girlfriend of mine gave him a nickname, Mom, which is so funny, but, like, he literally can hold it down like he like a dad can do um and you know I hope he can be that kind of example you know for other people he has a younger brother that has a daughter that's a you know a few months what is she's about like seven months younger than um Bellamy and I I hope that like the way he is with my husband is with his daughter is something that his brother will see too and um, will be the same way with 
uh, supporting his girlfriend and, you know, their family that they have because it's possible. Yeah. It's not easy, but it's possible. Yes, yes. And it also shows the role of a male figure in your life that it's outside of just, like, I bring income into the home. I can be emotionally available to you, just like mom can be emotionally available to me. I can bond with you on things that I find interesting and you choose to find interest in them. And I think more dads are thinking, especially black male dads. Um, and I remember when Kobe Bryant passed, there was a whole tribute on his um, girl dad role that people were like, oh man, you're Kobe Bryant. You don't have like a girl, uh, a son who could take up the like, the tradition of basketball. And he was like, well, I got my daughter, rest her soul, that loved basketball. And he just loved being around his daughters. He didn't care about those kind of paradigms. And so I think having someone so influential like him and so many other celebrities that are just like, I'm just happy to be around my kids. Like, we're happy to be alive. We're in a pandemic. Like, why are we holding so tightly to these things that, again, just because they're traditional and they've had a long history, are they life-giving? No. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, 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 my husband, you know, all of our friends, because, you know, we're, we're like one of the last to have kids out of, like, our friends. And I don't know a bad dad. You know, like, all the dads that I know, all of my friends mm-hmm. who have kids, they are all amazing fathers. Like, all of them. And... You know, it's it is normal actually. You know, it's not the it's just not talked about maybe, but I know nothing but amazing fathers. That's great. <laughs> Keep that going. Okay, before I end this interview, I do want to ask you to share what is one rose and one thorn that you've encountered lately? Ooh, what a question. So one rose that I have encountered lately is um, how do I want to I have had friendships over this past year in my life that have shown me so much grace and love that um, that the thorn that has been in my life, which is um, losing people that I never thought I would lose, um, that rose couldn't even like allow that thorn to really like penetrate, you know. Like, I I thought that the thorn was going to break me, but the roses just allowed me to bloom in a way that I don't think I would have bloomed if I didn't have the thorn. And I am very thankful. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that, I'm thankful that God is who he is. Because only he could have shown me that in the way he showed it to me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's 
praise God for perspective. Yes. I mean, that's so beautiful. I can't even, I just want to like pause and meditate on that. But I have to finish it. <laughs> that's so cool. I am, I cannot wait. You know, I'm so happy. So where can people follow along? I know you have your own podcast, so feel free to explain your podcast, where people can follow you and your podcast. Yes. So um, so first, like following me, you can follow me personally on my uh, social media. My Instagram is Ashley R. Comins. And um, on Facebook, uh, same, my Facebook page is that. And um, my podcast, so you're going to think, I feel like I'm like queen podcast. So the first podcast that I have is Black Political Millennials. Um, I co-host that with a friend named Martell. Um, That is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and that one, we basically just talk politics from a black millennial perspective. We're both black and we're both millennials. And so we just talk all things politics. Um, our goal with that show is to be relatable and conversational because a lot of people don't like politics. But we want to get people to really um, see how politics plays such a big role in our lives and how it affects us. So I have that one. And then I kind of started a new podcast last week for an organization that I'm a part of. It's called Unite. And that podcast, we simply just started so that we could talk a little bit more about organizing and what it looks like to organize and and what comes from organizing. So we just started our last um, podcast, our podcast last week. Our first guest is the Summer Lee. And that you can also find on Spotify and Anchor. And a third one, which is still kind of um, in the makings, I did a cohort over the pandemic um, called Sybil Shrine. And it is led by local artist Alicia Wormsley, Naomi Chambers, and Jessica... Oh my goodness, Jessica's last name is slipping. Um, But those three women started this cohort called Sybil Shrine, which is an art space for black creative moms. And I, my art was my voice. I use my voice as art. And so I did a podcast with two other women, and Quinique Kinzel and Camila Adams. And the three of us are going to be scheduling out our Sybil Shrine podcast. And that one is just going to be about black motherhood, womanhood, and sisterhood. So. What a variety of podcasts. I know. It's so crazy. I don't even know how it happened. We text this morning, too, so we could get a schedule because we're all so busy. But, you know, back to the media background. Like, who would have known this is how I was going to be able to start to share stories by doing podcasts. And yes, yes, it is such an amazing platform. And I feel like anyone that has stories to tell, has expertise, or wants to amplify other people's voices should consider starting a podcast. Um, and you have like, you have the political spectrum, 
you have um, organizing, which is kind of related, but different. And then very niche, what it means to be a black mother. Well, not very, but all of these things, I think so many people can relate to, especially when we lead up to the elections and not just the presidential election, but um, these local elections that are equally, if not, in my opinion, more important because they touch your community even deeper. And depending on the results of those elections, you might be called to start organizing so that you can hold people to to the fire and make changes in your community. And so I think these are very useful podcasts. So if you haven't, go ahead and check them out after you listen to this episode. Check out Black Political Millennials, Unite, and probably by the time this airs, Civil Shrine will have its episodes up. So check them out, rate them, review, and while you're at it, go ahead and subscribe and rate and review this podcast as well. Thank you so much, Ashley. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. Yes. I really enjoyed this. Keep it up. Thank you. I appreciated Ashley's openness in talking about her experiences in journalism and how she decided to shift her focus towards nonprofit involvement and public service. I love how Ashley shared the women that inspired her along her journey and how she says that history proves that if we come together for the greater good, we can make change. I truly believe that message and I hope you do too. If you'd like to listen to Ashley's podcast, Black Political Millennials, go ahead and check the link in the show notes. Follow Ashley on Instagram, and while you're there, follow the Tell Me If You Can podcast. Share this episode with a friend so that others can hear amazing stories just like Ashley's, and I hope you have a great day in your own amazing story. Mm -hmm.